0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Field Tripping. Our guest today provides health optimization and personalized medicine to high-achieving entrepreneurs, investors, and technology executives. For three years, she taught a pioneering course on health span in the wellness department at the medical school at Stanford University before launching her own company inspired by her unique philosophy of health. Since 2012, she has worked as an advisor or consultant to more than 50 companies in the digital health, consumer health, and biotechnology industries. Her name is Dr. Molly Malouf, and she is on the frontier of personalized medicine, digital health technologies, biofeedback assisted lifestyle interventions, psychedelic medicine, and science-backed wellness products and services. Her new book, The Spark Factor, is available for pre-order now uh, and comes out January 31st, 2023. Thank you for joining us today. Molly, are you ready to go field tripping?
1: I am ready to go field tripping. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for joining us in, uh, uh, from wonderful Sedona. I've never been, Beautiful, but the Sedona. backdrop <laughs> is pretty spectacular. And we're recording oh my video because we're going to start chopping this up for TikTok. So this is amazing. Oh,
1: great. Well, the funny thing, I, the, I went on a hike last night. And interestingly, NAD+, this IV I'm doing, these IVs I'm doing here, I was like, "Am I? is it me, or am I tripping?" And my friends like, "Oh yeah, a lot of people say that they feel like they're kind of tripping when they take when they do these IVs." But the nature here alone is so stunning and beautiful that you just feel like you're on a microdose, and even though even though you're not.
0: <laughs> I've heard that. I mean, I kind of lean into some of the woo-woo energy center stuff, but I've heard Sedona is an energy center uh, or a vortex or yeah, something along like a the lines. Yeah, got vortex or
1: something. And- they say.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We'll get into that conversation, but before we get into that kind of stuff, I want to say, uh, as we were talking about just before we started uh, recording, it's been a year since we first met briefly in Las Vegas at the Meet Delic Conference. I don't know if you remember, but I came up to introduce myself, and I remember the look of bewilderment on your face when I said hello, and you're like, uh, until a few minutes later, I think he connected the dots. Um, it was a good reminder that's right, to me to right. not, my, not let my head get too big uh, at the time, but I'm all, I'm so glad we finally got it together because I think I pitched you on coming to the podcast then, and and we're literally noticing uh, a year later.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean it's funny I I definitely felt like the Delac conference was a little bit overwhelming because we had just kind of come out of you know the, it was 2021 people were just really starting to get back into conferences. And there were so many people and I had given this, this you know, um, keynote and I was just like swarmed afterwards. And I, I I realized that there was definitely a moment happening in psychedelics. Like that was really a really special point in time where everybody was like, oh, this movement is happening full on. This is this is going to continue. This is the beginning of something that's going to just ex- continue to explode. And I'm excited to see where your company's going and all the great things you guys are doing and and happy to talk to you about what I'm up to as well
0: let's hop into it. So one of the things I did in preparation for every podcast is I troll people's social media to see if there's anything interesting to talk about. Uh, So we're going to start there. I noticed you recently posted on Twitter that, quote, I've met some brilliant young people who have had multiple adverse childhood experiences and have become incredible mature adults who are totally well-adjusted. They did the work and they overcame incredible pain. Humanity is capable of so much transformation clearly you've never fasted and sat through a day of Yom Kippur services today being Yom Kippur because you'd know real pain if you had. So my first question is as a biohacker, are you fasting today? And uh, how long do you typically fast for if that's part of your routine?
1: Oh, so I got really into fasting in 2019, 2018, 2019. Um, That was like, I mean, I was really trying to work on my fasting glucose. I was really trying to work on my uh, metabolic flexibility. And I was seeing someone who was like, had lost a ton of weight during with fasting. And I actually was on a podcast recently and I was telling this story about how fasting for a few days in nature with a friend of mine who I thought I was on a date with actually contributed to a lot of sexual tension, and a lot of energy that I was I, I was basically throwing out all these batteries that don't carry charge. Your mitochondria, when you fast, they don't – you basically are throwing out, like, dysfunctional batteries, the batteries that just don't carry charge. So that's mitophagy. So I had thrown out all these batteries that weren't carry charge, and then I ate really great California farm-to-table meals over the course of this weekend. And then um, after, after I'd, I'd done, like, the, I think it was like two-and-a-half-day fast – and then I did weightlifting, HIIT training and sauna, which are like all big biohacks. <laughs> and um, those actually are really good for bio, what's called mitochondrial biogenesis, which is increasing the number of, of batteries that you have in your cells. And then I went to connect with my community. So I got totally plugged in and I went home and that night I was envisioning, wouldn't it be great if you could go to the doctor and instead of getting crappy medicine in a fluorescently lit room, you actually got a peak experience as medicine. And I had a full on kundalini awakening, like massive orgasmic experience. It was just the most r- ridiculous thing. And I was telling my friends, you guys will not believe what happened to me last night after this fast I did. And I have to say that like, I think fasting played a major role in sort of like creating um, a totally new nervous system for me. I mean, this, this like sort of spiritual, a lot of spiritual seekers have always been fasting. So there's definitely something to be said about the role of fasting in personal growth and development. And it's a big part of my book. I cut out a lot of the prolonged fasting stuff because I don't think Everyone's really ready for that, but I do think that intermittent fasting is great. I usually fast around 12 to 14 hours a day, sometimes longer if I'm traveling. If I'm going across the ocean, um, I'll do longer fasts for jet lag prevention. So I, I do still fast, but I don't do as much as I used to in the past. But I think it played a major role in my personal growth and development.
0: That's awesome. Uh, thank you for sharing that. From personal development to orgasmic awareness, that's a, a great spectrum of things that can come out of a, uh, uh, a fast. Um, I'm asking this out of personal curiosity, but like, what? How, how should you break a fast? I've read all sorts of different things, and because uh, I, I I do intermittent fasting most days, and today being Yom Kippur, I'm uh, even though I am far from a pious Jew, I yeah, do a full day fast. Um, and and what's the, what's a good way to end a fast?
1: I guess first I'll say I'm technically Jewish, but I'm definitely not a practicing Jew. And so um, I definitely like wish I knew more about which holidays were happening when, but I mostly am like a spectator participant when my friends invite me to Shabbat. Um, But I will say that I do think it's really cool that like almost every religion in the world has some form of fasting, which is, it says a lot about its role in our health and our lives. Um, But how to break a fast. I mean, I've worn a glucose monitor off and on since 2014. And one of my um, areas of expertise is blood sugar monitoring. So I spent a long time monitoring my blood sugar. And in fact, like I, I actually still regularly monitor. I have one on right now. And, you know, I look at it as a tool for you to really identify what's working for your life and what's not. And so when it comes to fasting... You're going to develop a little bit of physiologic insulin resistance because your body's naturally going to be flipping the metabolic switch to, fr- to go from carbohydrate metabolism to fat metabolism. So when you do that, you are basically burning fats instead of carbs, which is great because that's good for your metabolic flexibility. But it can be problematic if you eat like pancakes or waffles or something. You know, like you don't want to break a fast with something that's higher carb because you're just going to spike your blood sugar. But you won't know what's happening unless you put a blood sugar monitor on and you actually see firsthand what's going on in your in your body. So this. Morning- morning. Morning. I had uh, like one small little jar, like maybe like a cup serving size of um, of a smoothie my friend made, and then I had two eggs and I had some coffee with some really delicious raw milk. And I can't get raw milk where I live, but I I never drink milk. But oh my god, I think I fall in love with this stuff. Um, So that was my breakfast. I stayed my my blood sugar stayed around one ten, which is like a really good post meal blood sugar. But like uh, if I were to, if I would have, like I saw the size of smoothie she had and I know my body and if I would have had like two, three, four cups of a smoothie, um, like a, a large jar, there's no way that I would have had a normal blood sugar. I would have spiked it. And I don't like the way that feels because it, it sets me off for the rest of the day with up and down, up and down blood sugar. And one of the keys to, you know, consistent energy is she's keeping a nice and steady blood sugar stream.
0: That makes sense. From what I've heard, it's it's pretty individualized.
1: Yeah. Some people do great with high carb meals.
0: Yeah, not me, not me. That's a, a good recipe for a nap, that's for sure. Um, okay, um, well, that's good to know. I, I try to, I try to break it with like something like sort of protein and fatty, um, because yeah, that's again, usually the move. Like and
1: fiber is great too.
0: Cool, good answer. Um, I'm doing the right thing. In reading the Spark Factor, which I confess I didn't get all the way through because I just got the advanced copy a few days ago, and uh, I don't read that quickly. Um, but I did pick up some good things. Uh, you talked about your journey to here and now being on field tripping, which is undoubtedly the pinnacle of your career. What was your path to becoming a doctor, a pediatrician, and ultimately a well-known biohacker uh, with her first book soon to be published? Were you one of those kids on a mission from a young age, or did your path reveal itself as you went? And just as you revealed the fact that you're technically Jewish, I am feeling you may have been on this path from a very young age, whether you liked it or not.
1: I mean, oh my God, where do I even begin? I feel like I, sometimes when I go on podcasts, I have these like deep desire to let people know things that I should not told other people because- because I'm like, I should probably finally tell that story. But um, there's a story that's not in the book that I think I'm going to tell today. Um, but just to give the sort of cliff notes on the life that I've lived, I grew up in Peoria, Illinois, which is basically America summarized. It's like if it plays in Peoria, it's, it's like a very traditional American town. I'm a very, very American woman. I'm Lebanese, Dutch, Irish, Scottish, German. And as I found out when I was ninth grade Jewish, even though I was raised Christian and went to a Christian grade school. So, I um wanted to become a doctor in 5th grade. I like really had a clear calling to becoming a physician and it was almost like after a few, you know, pretty significant familial um just like challenges that were going on in our family, like there were some deaths, there were some traumas. I just kind of woke up and it was 5th grade and I was like, okay, the world is not fair, life has a lot of suffering and I need to find a way to alleviate that. And I need to be a part of that change that I want to see. And so I was like, and I'm going to become a doctor. And I started reading Russian novels and I started reading Michael Crichton and I was like obsessed with doctors that were authors. And, um, and then I was on this path, but on that path, I remember going through puberty and just thinking like hormones are all over the place. What the hell is this about? Like, what does this even mean? Someday I'm going to figure out my, my body. I get to high school I start biohacking I start I start I didn't even know what it was called biohacking but I knew that I was like really interested in how to use science to change my physiology and I used to read popular science and I remember hearing about modafinil thinking oh my god if there was a drug that could keep me from sleeping I would totally take it and uh I used to just like totally you know just overwork myself into the ground and um I guess that's something I still kind of do but I'm a lot better about um I take a lot more I guess I, I think I'm developing more balance than when I was young, but I used to take supplements and and I definitely was always trying to like tinker with my body um, throughout my my younger years. You know, I get to the point where I become a doctor and I'm like, oh my God, this system is just so epically screwed up. And I, I'm like, my dream job is a nightmare. I don't like working in the hospital. I'm the black sheep of my, of my program. I'm definitely not getting uh, the kind of you know, treatment my other peers are getting. I'm I'm constantly like, hey, why don't we change this about this system? And they're like, no, you're literally a resident. Your job is to keep your mouth shut and to do your work. And I was like, okay, so I'm not gonna really be able to change anything in the world if I work in this system, which is annoying. So I about year in, I'm like finishing my internship and I'm like, well technically I could technically I don't really have to do the rest of the residency. I could get my license and I could just be I could just do my own thing. Um and so I, doubt, you know, I had, <laughs> I had an experience, um, with a very potent psychedelic, in okay. Harbin Hot Springs, and it's also the same the same ingredient that you find in ayahuasca. I'm sure you can predict what that is. It's a very fast acting yeah. psychedelic, and I had basically had a massive ego death experience, and it was like the first time in my life that I really really got to the point with a psychedelic where I was totally in another realm and in that realm I experienced my entire life flash before my eyes and then I experienced pre-life and then afterlife so like before birth and after birth and I came out of this trip like oh my god I only have one life to live that I know of there may be an afterlife after this but this is the only one I'm in this body so I might as well take take advantage of it and really live the way I want to live and and do what I want to do with my life instead of living a life that's prescribed to me by everyone else. So I actually made a decision, which I don't recommend you do this after a psychedelic experience. I actually recommend to everyone who does psychedelics that you should really wait at least a month before you make a major life decision. But it was pretty clear to me that I needed to resign. So I resigned from my residency and ended up getting my license and then ended up starting my own practice and also starting to work with startups um, and starting to work as a basically doctor for hire for early stage companies that needed help with clinical strategy and product development and clinical research and scientific marketing. And that's where I cut my teeth in tech while I was working with executives because there was a bunch of people who were thinking like, I want to run all these labs. I want to hack my body. How do I do that? I need some guidance. So I developed my practice around not just fixing sickness, but optimizing health. So a lot of what I do is personalized medical research and people come to me with all sorts of weird problems that their doctors have told them, this is impossible. You're not going to be able to fix it. And I'm like, uh no, we're gonna fix it and we're gonna solve it. And I've, you know, recently helped a patient with a what was considered an incurable skin condition heal. And I'm the kind of doctor that just says you can't lose hope. You have to have hope if you want to heal. And I'm also um, now a founder of a psychedelic company, and um, we could talk about that as well. But that was my main journey to becoming this doctor, and what this book is largely about.
0: I love. That story mostly because like, it sounds like the doctor female version of, of my story and, and, and very, really? well, very, oh yeah. Cause like I, I, I was on the path to becoming a lawyer from, from a young age, um, you know, got there and realized, Hey, this sucks. And, uh, I was always kind of the black sheep of, of my law school and, and didn't fit in at my law firm and all that kind of stuff. And then kind of went to a very different path, not necessarily in, in, you know, uh, advising companies on, on digital medical strategies and all that kind of stuff. Cause that was certainly not my forte, but in the very black sheep, like I'm doing this my own way. Um, kind of experience. And actually, it was super interesting that um, just this past weekend, so I don't know if you're aware, but we've been working on a documentary um, that we're showing the first private screening of, uh, not screening, review uh, review session with with a few people next Friday, uh, In today being October 5th. I know this episode won't come out for a little while, so we may have to edit this out But I'm sharing the story. Uh, so we've been working on a documentary. Um, Irvine Welsh, uh, the author of Trainspotting, was recently in Toronto and saw our sizzle reel for it. So he's like, why don't we do five MEO DMT together? I don't know if that's the... Sub- no, you, I think you were talking about just regular DMT, but then- uh, so he came here and um, we did five MEO DMT together, which is technically legal in Canada, or at least Oh
1: not my God, illegal. that's right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was a, a, a very eye-opening experience a, as well. Anyway, all of that really Kind of resonates me, so I think we've been on very similar journeys in in certain ways, uh, different exact paths, but uh, that, that's awesome. Thank you, thank you for sharing. Out of curiosity, uh, that that experience with uh, the substance in ayahuasca uh, was that your first psychedelic experience? Like, it sounds to me like you had been a kid, probably much like me, very much on a on a straight and narrow for a certain point, and then just said "fuck this" and and moved off. Um, so, wondering when did psychedelics enter? Or frame, um, even if not to the point of being so pivotal as, as that experience?
1: So, I, um, for since at least college, have been interested from a research context about psychedelics. I was in my undergraduate years in 22 to 26, 2006, and I was um, in the history and philosophy library. And one of the benefits of being in the history, like working in these libraries, which was like, m- I'm kind of a nerd, uh, a library nerd, uh, is you can check books out for like months at a time and nobody can tell you not to turn them in because you work there and you can just keep checking them out. So I literally found the whole section on psychedelics. It was like this long. It was like this many books. It was like probably 20 books or something. And I checked all of them out and I took them all to my room and I started reading them one by one. And I was like, oh my God, these have had a massive influence on our evolution, why are they so demonized why are they so taboo why do people make them such crazy things like it's so obvious to me that these are like a really important part of human history and um and i so i was really obsessed with learning about them and i actually tell everybody the same thing like don't take psychedelics until you educated yourself on psychedelics because you're really playing with powerful powerful medicine and i i really am just i mean i'm I'm very pro psychedelic but i'm also like just as much of a massive critic of the space of psychedelics, because I think it's just fundamentally important for people to have education before they get into them. So I was like, I was like very afraid of the the concept of letting go, and I was just like, I don't know if I can do ever do these things, but I'm like intrigued by them. And in between college and medical school, I had a job, and my parents were not pleased when I told them that I was going to spend my summer registering voters at music festivals for this company called Headcount. So I was like, look, I'm getting free tickets the entire summer and they're paying all of my gas to go to all of these amazing festivals and I'm getting backstage passes like, mom, this is awesome. <laughs> and so interestingly, uh, they let me do it and they're like, well, aren't you going to go to medical school? When are you going to get your stuff? Like, I'm "Like, look, I'm going to take a year off. I'm going to work in a hospital. I'm going to definitely determine whether I want to do this or not. So I went and I went to this music festival and I wasn't actually working at that music festival, but I'd been to this, I got invited by this guy that I was friends with um, to go, and my sister invited me to go to this tiny little music festival in Indiana. And I did mushrooms for the first time. And I remember doing quite a lot. I don't think I've ever done this much again. Cause I've never, I, I don't, I can't remember the last time I got that high on mushrooms. It was literally my it was like my early 20s. And I I think I got the message when I did it at that time. I was like, it was, it was the most profound experience. I was speechless the entire time. I was laying under a tree and I was just like, I saw the most vivid, vivid visions I've ever seen. And I I was completely, completely floored and and just overall blown away by the whole experience. And then the next day I remember driving home being like, I'm just, this is, it was so ineffable that I just, I was in this state of, whoa, what was that? It, what, what, what was that? And I didn't actually touch psychedelics for a long time because I went to medical school. And, um, in medical school, uh, one of my friends was, was driving through the country who I'd actually met him at Bonnaroo. We were registering voters together. His name was Bear Cadet, And Bear, you might know him actually, he invited me to go to Burning Man. And I'm like, look, I'm in my fourth year of medical school. And I like, I'm about to head my, into my fourth year. I'm about to take my board exam. Maybe I could go after to take my test, but like, if I do this, I can't ever go back. Cause I have to go back into the, I have to go back into the real world. Like I can't just like you know just go to burning man every year like this will just be a one-time thing and so i i finished my board exam flat arena drive into black rock city and uh basically got exposed to i actually didn't do any psychedelics the first year of burning man but i was like surrounded by them so there's quite a lot of just like a feeling of oh my god like everyone's everyone's on psychedelics here <laughs> And I was very skeptical. I was very, very hands off, very conservative. I was like, I'm "Not doing psychedelics. I'm not doing any funny business. Like, I'm here just to figure this, just to experience Burning Man and see the art." And um, I remember leaving Burning Man, being like, "Oh my god, I cannot believe this! This, cha- this like changed my life." And I made an entirely new community of friends. And when I was traveling around the country, interviewing at medical schools and re- sorry, residencies. All of my Burning Man friends um, opened up their homes to me in the Bay Area. And actually, that was the reason why I decided to do my residency in the Bay. Because I really wanted to be be near people who are my friends. And I wanted a community. And Burning Man really taught me that. Um, and then once you get to the Bay Area, you realize, like, I moved to Oakland. And Oakland is just, like, at the time, going through the marijuana revolution. And this was, like, 2011-12. And so I'm, like holy crap, there are dispensaries for medicinal marijuana. There are people taking classes on how to grow marijuana. There are underground marijuana clubs. Like Oakland is like an epicenter of a shift happening in, and this would never happen in Illinois. And it was a culture shock. And then like, instead of drinking, a lot of my friends would use psychedelics. And so I was more and more exposed to psychedelics through the Burning Man community, through the San Francisco community, because San Francisco has always been sort of a progressive landmark of our culture. And sort of that's what, It's funny because, like, I remember early on meeting all these friends of mine, being like, "Someday, I think I think psychedelics are going to be medicine," and people were like, "You're crazy! Like this is ridiculous!" And literally within a few years. There was this psychedelic revolution happening. Marijuana started to become more and more legal, and then I got people kind of so, started associating me with with like the tech scene and working with doctors and being an innovator. And so I would regularly interview with the press because I was kind of always on the cutting edge of what was cool and new. And I was actually talking to some of my friends who were founders, and they were like, "Yeah, I just had the best meeting with his investor, and I was microdosing." And I'm like, "Wait, what? <laughs> what? what what's, go, what's going on?" He's like, "Yeah, I microdose before I go to meetings, and I just like." I'm so in flow. And so funnily enough, there starts to be this sort of underground discussion of, oh my God, people are using microdosing to ma- magnify their performance. And I was known as a doctor to amplify performance and improve you know, how people master their health during high stress situations. And so fu- I, I, for some reason, got introduced to the Financial Times and they interviewed me and put my face in this article about how Silicon Valley had rediscovered LSD through microdosing for performance enhancement. And, and I think 2017 was like a definite turning point where things were starting to really take off, but it w- but then it was the pandemic that really shot everything up. And in 2020, I'd say, um, you know, I started the psychedelic news hour and I basically started talking about psychedelics on the public forum of the of clubhouse because that was where everybody was located during, you know, quarantines. And um, you know, field trip shows up, and compass pathways and maps is starting to get a lot of traction. And before you know it, there's like a few hundred companies that have started. And it was 2021 when I started my company, which we can talk about. But that's that's really my journey. And I it was it's a long answer, but I guess um, it's been a progressive evolution towards um, building out a psychedelic. You know, protocol in my practice. I do. I, I've done. A, I did a small amount of ketamine assisted therapy for quite a good number of clients during the pandemic who were suffering from PTSD and depression and and um, just you know, lots and lots of people were start struggling with, you know, major anxiety. And I found that sublingual ketamine in the protocol I designed, That's like very long and intensive, like 38 pages. That's when I started realizing, oh my gosh, there's really an opportunity here to to help people. So I could literally talk for days, but hopefully that answers your question. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's a great job. And thank you for mem- uh, mentioning Clubhouse. Remember Clubhouse? It was a thing yeah, right? for a very brief moment in time. It's like
1: worth a few billion or something.
0: For a very brief moment in yeah. time. I, I don't yeah. even know if it, does anyone use Clubhouse anymore? Well, I it's have a shame? No idea. I built a was-
1: hundred thousand person cl- like psychedelic club on the clubhouse, and I can't find I can't get these people's contact information. It's just quite All right, annoying. Yeah.
0: Are you still using Clubhouse? Like, do people still tune in?
1: I think some people still use it, but we'll see. You know.
0: Cool. Well, thank you. Thank you for for sharing your story. I appreciate it. Um, did you go to Burning Man this year?
1: I did for three days. Okay. And probably got it? COVID. Oh shit. <laughs> well, I came home with COVID, which is great. Um, but I. I have to say it's the closest to uh, physical hell on earth I've ever experienced. It was the hottest, driest, hellacious experience, like physical experience. But I saw 300 plus of my closest friends from the Bay Area and around the world. And it the amount of love that you, I received from just friends and family, like that, friends that feel like family was really profound. It made it worth the trip, but I wouldn't have, I mean, I just can't imagine going longer than three days. Honestly, it's just too crazy. It's, it's like too, Vegas. Too I can
0: spend about twenty four to thirty six hours oh, in yeah. Vegas, and I need to get the f out of there.
1: Do, uh, yeah, I really feel like Burning Man's like Vegas, and they should just make it at the end of September instead of the end of August, because it's just not healthy for people to be in one hundred twenty degree you know weather um, without proper support. So. I, lo- I mean, I obviously love Burning Man, but I don't go there for the art and, and the music anymore. I used, I just go there for the people. So it's like my entire intention, the entire time was to go there. And I also wanted to meet up with some of my investors. And sp- I spoke at this camp called Playa Alchemist. So I gave a big talk about my company um, and biohacking community inside a giant pyramid. So I was kind of, I, I hate to admit this publicly, but I'm like, Burning Man was a work trip this year <laughs> with like a bunch of connection with friends. But it was really just, my main intention was to see people that I love.
0: I can't wait till the IRS audits you and says like, what's this write-off for psychedelic drugs? Is, is this a legitimate Oh, no, no, write-off? no,
1: no, no, no psychedelic. I actually like really didn't, <laughs> really did not partake a lot this year. It was not my, my, my goal. And honestly, I think a lot of people probably experienced some side effects from the con- conditions. Like it was actually the least amount of partying I've done at Burning Man, which is interesting. So yeah. <laughs>
0: Actually, I wanna I want to circle back to something uh, you said earlier, and it's actually the reason I, I mentioned the experience with Irvin Welsh. Um, and then I totally lost my train of thought, as happens way too often these days. of uh, the consequences of being in your forties, I suppose. Which I was know. we've all
1: been through a lot last last three years. <laughs> Sure have, my memory yeah. is not the same as it was before the pandemic. I mean, I think a lot, and actually 70, I pulled my Instagram and 70% of my followers had said the same thing. So I, I really feel like everyone's feeling the memory issues, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. You're probably right. I think actually one of my questions I want to ask you is like uh, about COVID and longevity, but we'll come to that sure. after we talk about the the spark factor, after we talk about my, my kind of next question, which is. One of the realizations that came out of my experience with 5MAO DMT with Irvin Welsh uh, was this realization that you said in the context of your clients, which is clients come to you with intractable problems and they say that you know medical community says there's nothing you can do. And you say like, no, there's something we can do. And one of the things that came out of this experience for me is that's how I've always kind of lived my life, which is like, I don't let the negative outcomes happen and I will continue to live my entire life to make sure whatever negative thing I'm worried about it doesn't play out, um, and I've always been in this hyper-vigilant state for myself, for my family, for my kids, for my mom, uh, and it's and it's truly exhausting. Um, and it was a really profound awareness. I had always been somewhat cognizant of it, but it just went so much deeper in terms of an embodied awareness of just how much I take on and how I don't let myself feel emotions. Like what came out from that experience was a intense feeling of grief, which I don't let myself feel because I'm like I'm not going to let a world occur in which I have to feel grief. And therefore I don't have to feel grief here. And my question to you is, you know, do you understand that? It sounds like you do, but do you ever find that you take that on with your clients, which is almost take on that hypervigilance being like, we're not going to let this and And then you get fully consumed by that either for your clients or for yourself.
1: I guess what I'll start saying is I love, there was this meme that was going around on Instagram like a week ago or so. And it was like, if you're a Jewish person living today, you basically are neurotic because that those are the genes that were, those are the genes that survived. Yeah. <laughs> and I kind of love that because it kind of is like, well, the people who weren't neurotic probably didn't care enough to like do anything when things were really bad during the Holocaust, you know? And like they, um, like, I know that my ancestors came over during the war and were like, okay, well, so we're just not Jewish anymore. We're just going to be Protestant. Like, we're going to change our names and we're just going to all become Protestant and whatever. And so I think there was a, there's a sort of genetic sort of neuroticism in, in, in people with Jewish lineage that is, like, potentially protective because it can make you more alert to what's dangerous in your environment so you can protect yourself, right? And, like, I've, I've been doing quite a lot of research and I'm actually going through a training for trauma right now specifically because I believe that trauma is like unprocessed fear and emotions that we actually need to, that, that kind of gets stuck in our body as malware. And it's like your brain is still reacting to a past experience as though it's present. And when you look at it that way, you're like, oh, so like how do I process that, that memory and how do I reprogram that memory and how do I be able to experience that memory without being triggered. And that's really when you know you're healed, you've healed from a lot of trauma is when you're no longer reactive to things that activate you, especially related to the things that traumatized you. And not everybody has big T trauma, but lots of people do, specifically people who seek psychedelic medicine. And one of the powerful facets of psychedelic medicine is the ability to go into those memories and to be able to reprogram them from a state of love and connection. And I mean, whenever I've experienced 5-MeO, it's always been this message, God is love. Like, oh my God, that is so profound. Um, So at the same time, am I immune to things that trigger and activate me? Absolutely not. There are people in the world that are psychopaths. And there are people in the world that are just bad people. And you don't really realize it until it becomes obvious that they're not on your side and they don't want to help you. And so we have to have these systems that activate our nervous system so that we can get out of danger, right? Like, that's necessary. But the problem is that when those systems end up consistently causing us to react to reality in a way that we don't want to behave. So a lot of what I do nowadays is really work with coaches to focus on how do I reformat these patterns and these triggers and these memories. And I really, I think this is a big piece of what psychedelic medicine can bring to the table is the protocol plus the medicine is really the real, that's where you get the best outcomes. So, um, so I mean, it's funny, I, I have a totally different perspective on health and medicine now than I than I had even 10 years ago. And a lot of that's based on this this very old idea that a lot of people have written about multiple times. And, and that's that the internal state of your body determines the external reality you live in. And so it's just a incredible daily practice of listening and watching my thoughts and noticing how I'm thinking and, and noticing how that's making me feel. And then actively trying to shift how I feel so that I can change the way that my reality expresses itself and manifests. And that is a massive amount of work to do on it. But, but it's actually just as much work to sit around worrying and catastrophizing and reacting. It's just as much energy that goes into that as it goes into the opposite, right? So it's like everything is hard in life. Being healthy is hard. Having a strong mindset is hard. Emotional regulation is hard. Like keeping like a strong core strategy and vision for your company and sticking with it is hard, but you, we just have to choose our heart. And so I'm, I, I'm a self, op, I'm a health optimization, like I guess junkie at this point, like I'm constantly always trying to improve. And the thing that really got me recently was like, Oh my God, like everything gets easier. If my mindset shifts everything, I noticed it on people, I surround myself with my patients, my clientele, like I had a client who um, was really suffering from a lot of sickness and I said, and he actually could make himself faint by just freaking out about, about hypochondriasis. And I was like, after working with him on getting him a meditation coach and working with him on his mindset and I actually said to him, I'm like, okay, so I'm going to let you in on a secret. Like the power you have to make yourself sick is the exact same power you have to make yourself well. And so I want you to whenever you feel fear and whenever you feel intense anxiety about your health about your about what's going on in your life, I want you to know that you can change that valence of that experience to positive but that's an that's an active working thing you have to do it's it's not just thing it doesn't just happen you have to do it and so he um, he went on a 10 day meditation retreat came back just totally transformed by the experience and consistently I'm seeing this person, know that like the way that he thinks changes the way that he feels and it actually changes the manifestation of his illness. And he's almost completely healed at this point, but it was not just, it was it was definitely nutritional changes, it was diet changes, it was sleep changes, but a lot of it was also mindset and spirituality and really working with his innate capacity to change the way he feels. And this is not something we teach children. This is not something that we were taught in schools. And it's it's also, I think, greatly aided by psychedelic medicine. Um, this individual didn't use psychedelics, but I I have... Worked with other clients that have, and I do think that um, it's one of the biggest promises that they can offer us is being able to ch- change our mindset. Specifically, if we combine them with very clear protocols that can be used to to shift mine.
0: Totally agree. Um, I talk quite regularly. Actually, was just on the podcast recently with a fellow Austinite. You say Austinite? Mm-hmm. I don't know how you refer to people who live in Austin. Uh, yeah. Tucker Max, um, and he was oh, talking yeah, he's about. Yeah, he's, he's amazing, and. Uh, I'm actually, going to be in Austin next week, and I'm going to be hanging out with him. Uh, I don't know if you're going to be in town, but if I'm you right. are, let me know. Yeah, um, cool. I'll, I'll shoot you a note. Not everybody on the podcast needs to hear us making plans, but um, right. he said like there, there's there's two elements to the journey through psychedelics, which is like the emotional release, and then the reprogramming, right and and Certainly during the experience, based on all the tears and snot that comes out of me, <laughs> there's a lot of emotional yeah. release. Uh, but the reprogramming, I mean, people talk about integration, uh, but it's not really clear what is integration. And I so I, I think about integration as a as a lifelong process, which is going to be more proactive and, and more passive at or yeah, more proactive and more passive at various times. But one of the things you said that I think is is really powerful is our thoughts affect our emotions, but to change our thoughts, we actually need to change our emotions, right? It's a, it's, it's a bifurcated system. You can't think yourself into happiness, right? You, you can only feel yourself into happiness.
1: The way that I kind of see it, it's like, you have to kind of position yourself. Okay. Where am I, what am I feeling right now in my body? And like, there's a great book called power versus force by, um, the psychiatrist, David Hawkins, who was, he had a spiritual awakening after he had a near, near death experience. And, um, he basically has this whole scale of like consciousness from like shame and guilt and fear at the very bottom to like joy, peace, and love at the top and enlightenment. And so I know what it feels like to feel fear and I feel it in my, my neck and my upper back and it's tension and it's tight and it hurts and it really can cause physical pain. And so like I do think that like the thing that's beautiful about psychedelics is that it can do a lot of fear resetting for you if you do it properly and you're in a safe location. With a, It's good to have a centered mindset going into a psychedelic experience, but you want to be in a location where you feel completely safe and you want to feel surrounded by love and people that care about you and people that you trust. Um, that to me is like the set and setting is, is just undeniably fundamental to a good outcome, but you have to be able to be okay with whatever comes up and to be able to like surrender to whatever experience, no matter if it's positive or negative, like know that you're going to get the medicine you need. And, and like during the pandemic, I was very close to burnout and I definitely did a mushroom trip and I cried for like half a day. And I remember thinking, Oh my God, I needed to do this because I needed to like connect with myself and just apologize to myself for being so hard on myself and expecting so much from myself and not really giving myself the recovery I needed. And it was like a profoundly beautiful experience. But it's not just enough for me to tell myself that. I actually had to change my life. I had to change the way I was living. I had to change the way I was working. I had to give myself more rest. I had to start increasing the carbohydrates in my diet. I was eating too low carb. My body needed more consistent meal timing. You know, with biohacking, you can't actually really do a lot of the hardcore biohacks when you're close to burnout. In fact, that's probably contraindicated. And so I had to get regular mealtimes. I had to give myself a lot more recovery. I had to stop working on weekends. I had to spend more time with my family. I had to change my supplement regimen. I had to make a lot of changes. And to me, integration is like saying, oh my God, I had this aha moment in my psychedelic trip. What am I going to do about that? What is going to change about my life? What needs, to, what needs to change? And so I actually regularly keep track of aha moments, big insights, advice from friends that are practitioners, that are spiritual experts, that are psychologists. And I'm always taking in all of this information. And then every every full moon and new moon, I set very clear intentions. Okay, what am I going to work on over the next two weeks to improve my, myself, to, to develop, to to make these changes that I know I need to make in order to become a healthier, happier human? And sometimes it's like the last month was I need to recover from COVID. (laughs) I need to get back into my energetic, highest energy state. I need to do, I need to implement some real physical health changes. But I also was like, you know, in order for me to accomplish all the things that I need to accomplish this year, I need to find more balance. I need to find more harmony. I need to find there were some relationships that were no longer serving me that I needed to say goodbye to. And I needed to realize that I need to surround myself more with the people who make me feel good and really make me feel safe and nourished. That is what integration is about. It's like it's transforming the, the things that you learn in your experiences and making them come into fruition through your, your day-to-day life, um, lived life experience.
0: I think that's totally on point, and I think the only thing I was trying to get at is to remember that a lot of it is about feeling and not thinking. Yes. And I think in our society we try to think our way through a lot of things when just like taking a moment when we're when we're thinking negative thoughts and feeling anxiety. Yeah. To, instead of go to oh I should just be happy and not worry, maybe shift to like let myself feel love. Let, let remind myself of those moments where I felt love, and then I can shift. So it's it's kind of like a breathing pattern almost
1: what I'm learning from all these trauma experts is like you know things that really there's obviously like the hardcore life traumas that happen to us, but then there's these like like day to day things, these relationship injuries, these social injuries that we experience that can feel traumatic too, right? And so we're gonna feel things, things are gonna come up and we're gonna have these negative emotions. But one of the worst things that we can do is not feel them fully. So one of the things that this company called Mindlight they do is they really teach you to actually feel all of the pain, feel it all, and like really really feel it. This is actually um in the great this great book by David Hawkins also called Letting Go. And you you go into the negative emotion and you actually let yourself feel the full expression of it. Like the full intensity of it, the full amount of anger, the full amount of grief, the full amount of of sadness. And then you just like actually go through the process of what's called letting go you say, okay, I'm going to feel everything and I'm just going to let it go. And then you actively afterwards are like, well, what? now I'm going to actively work on feeling joy. I'm going to do things that create more joy. I was like, you know what I'm doing a lot of is working a lot. And you know what I'm not doing enough? A lot of, a lot of is, is enough play. Like even at Burning Man this year, I like Definitely was not. I was like, mostly, I felt like I was kind of like on uh, for work reasons. And it was like, okay, I didn't actually play enough. And so, in a, in a week, um, I'm actually going to Austin City Limits next weekend, which I love music festivals. And then the weekend after, um, I'm going to an adult summer camp. Cause I was like, if I wanna feel more joy, then I need to play like a child. Cause you know what playing like a child makes you feel is joy. And so, sometimes it's actually embodying the emotion through activity. And like getting into our bodies that can actually help us feel differently. When I was in the worst of COVID, I was like, oh my God, if I'm laying in bed for a week, I'm just going to be stagnant. I need to get out of my bed and I need to go and and do something. So I went and I went and got ozone. And I was like, okay, this is great. You know, I just getting out of my house and getting ozone treatments, like this is good. But I was also noticing that through the COVID experience, I was starting to have some fears come up. I was like, I'm going to, what if I get long COVID? And then, and I was researching COVID. I'm like, oh my God, a lot of people who have COVID end up with like psychological problems, psychiatric problems afterwards. They end up with like chronic fatigue. And I'm like, and I know so much about viruses and chronic fatigue. And I'm like, oh my God, what if I end up with chronic COVID? So I was doing a lot of fear looping. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to let myself feel this way. I'm feeling a little stagnant in my house. I'm going to fly to LA. And after two weeks of of recovery, I was like, after one week of sickness and one week of recovery, I was like, I'm going to LA. I'm going to the Biohackers Conference. And I felt so much better just being around energetic people and energized people. So you can change the way you feel also by your environment, by changing the people that you're around. And then by actively deciding... I am not going to feel, I'm not going to let myself, I'm not going to let this continue to to get worse. I'm going to actually just do things that make me feel good. And being around people makes me feel good. Just like changing my mindset, being around people that I love and care about my friends, just having real connections with people. So don't underestimate the power of just like changing the people that you're around and just changing up your environment to actually like shift your, your physiology as well.
0: Free your mind and your ass will follow, Uh, George (laughs) Clinton. No, I think that's that's really totally on point. I I remember at one point in my life, probably the most depressed I've ever felt, it was when I was articling uh, to become a lawyer and I hated my life. And and I had this realization that a lot of happiness just comes from feeling like you're making progress towards your goals, regardless of whether you achieve them. And so just taking a step in the right direction, whatever it may be, being like, I need to get out of my house. I want to play in a band again. I don't want to be a lawyer or a doctor. Don't need to get there, but as long as I am taking steps towards it, there's a, a there's a lot of happiness in in, in that as well. So I, I appreciate those insights. Thank you for sharing. I had a question about psychedelics and love and connection, but maybe we'll come to that after. Let's talk about your book. Uh, what inspired you to write The Spark Factor?
1: Funnily enough, I'm in the Bay Area, and you know I've developed a reputation as like a doctor who knows like a lot about innovation and a lot about health. And I got asked to teach at Stanford, and I was like. Oh my god! Really? Like Stanford University wants me to teach a course on health? I was like, I was actually totally blown away, and it was a very vindicating moment for me, having left my residency and gone to only publicly educate, only publicly educated from you know, I from high school to college. It was in medical school it was all public education. So when I was like, oh my god, an Ivy League institution wants me to teach? This is crazy. So I went a little bit overboard, and I went and I basically. Just did an enormous amount of research to really put my thoughts on paper and to really try to create a core philosophy of health that I could, you know, basically explain to students was a theory of health span extension. So I um, designed a course and it was like 10 hours of technically it was a it was like two hour course, like say two hour course, but it was about two hours of lecturing per week. And, um, I had about two lectures each time I would come into class. So there was about, there was a lot of content. My students, when I first started teaching the course, like I actually got standing ovations from them. They were like, it was like a performance I was giving, you know? And I remember thinking, I can't believe how gratifying this is to be teaching at this school. And, um, but something always bugged me about teaching, which was I'm having these students give me, giving me these amazing reviews of my class. And yet my class is only reaching like 20 to 30 students at a time. So I was like, you know what? There's got to be a way to give this, like to actually share this with the world. When I was thinking about this book, I was like, it was 2019. I had just gone through a meditation retreat. And I was like, what should I do with all this knowledge? And it was very clear to me in that retreat, oh my God, you're going to write a book. And you got to do this. Like you really, really got to do this. And um, so I, I had this meditation retreat was basically... Asked to cook for people, it was my first ten day retreat. But the person who was supposed to cook for everyone had a bit of a panic attack because she didn't know how to cook without like a cookbook. And so I was like, "Well, I can cook without a cookbook, easy." And so I ended up cooking for like ten people at this retreat for like ten days, and it was actually quite a lot of fun. But they gave me a pencil because they knew that I needed to write down recipes, right? And so, and, and I needed to record what I was doing. But funnily enough, I took that pencil and I took advantage of it and I used it to write the outlines of like two books. One would be a, a book and one would be a cookbook. And that's when I started thinking about writing a book. And then I ended up um, giving a talk at Paleo FX and I met this ghostwriter and she's like, you should totally uh, write a book. And I'm like, well, yeah, but that's like a ton of work. And so she and I um, ended up working together and because I realized writing a proposal of a book is like a 90-page process. process. You have to write like 90 pages of a book, basically. It's like with the marketing plans and everything. So she helped me write my proposal. But when we actually wrote the book, I went through my entire Stanford course, and I I just basically taught it to her, and we recorded the whole thing. So the book is very, very much a derivative of my philosophy of health. But it's also being marketed as a book on biohacking because that's really what you need to do if you want to optimize your health. It's not like you It's not like you read a book and you're like, okay, I'm going to do everything in the book and then I'm going to be healthy. Actually, getting healthy can take years. And it's about slow, iterative habits and changes that you make that increase your health outcomes. And they're very personal. And so I'm not writing this book as like a, you need to read this book and do everything in it. It's like, no, this is a, how you need to think about optimizing health. This is the way you should be thinking about your lifespan through understanding how mitochondria function, the energy uh, generators of your cells, the powerhouses, the batteries, the capacitors, the signal and indu- like the integrators, the hormone producers. Like these things do everything. They're basically the general contractors of your body, and they're also intent I believe that they're also the p- potentially antennas of consciousness because without life we you know without energy, there was no life. So I'm a big, big fan of, um, of just seeing the body through the lens of energy instead of mat- the material. And so I really love studying mitochondria because they're electromagnetic organelles. And when I f- really started understanding how mitochondria function and really started optimizing mitochondria, that's when my health really started to improve massively. And, um, and so the book's really based on mitochondrial health, health span extension, biohacking for women. Um, anybody can read it, but it definitely is, t- is geared towards women. Cause all the books on biohacking have been made for men.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Just as you were talking like over your left shoulder for me, maybe I'm a little bit high, even though I'm not, uh, the cloud kind of looks like Yoda kind of looking over your shoulder. And I felt that was like a very <laughs> sagistic moment, uh, it, it, in this I talk. Um, so thank you for sharing all that. Um, I tell the story kind of often, which is many oh, years ago. Yoda. I see joined- Yoda. Oh my
1: god! Like the little Yoda right you, here.
0: I saw him on the other side, actually, like over, over your here? left shoulder. The the clouds now moved on, but it kind of okay. looked like years. And with the with the tree, it clouds. kind of gave it a, a hue of green. Uh, a hue of green. Cute. So many years ago, when I joined Mastermind Talks, it's a community that my friend Jason Gienard, um runs. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but I'm sure you know a lot of people in it. Uh, Cameron Harold, who had just released his book called Double Double, uh, gave a presentation. And I personally was really grateful when Cam cut to the chase in this presentation. I said, you could read the whole book, uh, but you'll get what you need by just reading these two chapters. And so with that said, you know what are, if you can sum up in two or three points, what are the most important takeaways from the spark factor that people could start thinking about today uh, while they anticipate the release of the book in, in January?
1: So I would say that your energy production of your body is really dependent on how you feed yourself and fuel your cells, how you and 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 whether or not what you're eating is breaking your mitochondria or actually nourishing them, right? So a polyphenol micronutrient rich diet that has balanced macronutrients that's not spiking your blood sugar is going to be much better for you than eating packaged processed ultra processed foods, a western diet that's high fat, high carb and basically High in refined carbohydrates and sugar, high in fried vegetable oils, and high in confined animal operation meat. So, like, that's the big piece of the nutrition puzzle, as well as talking a lot about the microbiome. Now, so there's metabolism, which is like how we actually charge the cells. And then there's um, movement, which is how we send the signal to make more batteries. So, our muscles are basically like our power packs of our body. And if you have, you know, frailty, people who develop frailty when they get older, they don't realize that it's preventable. And you don't have to get frail and you don't have to get brittle and weak, but you have to build your bones when you're, when you're young and you have to keep those muscles strong as you get older. So you actually have to get enough protein intake. And a lot of people think that high protein diets are going to make you live less, but they actually, if they're combined with exercise, it can be highly influential in keeping that muscle tone as you get older. And by high protein, I mean like one, like for an athlete, 1.6 grams per kilogram. Now, exercise is it's it's not just enough to lift weights you also need to keep your heart strong because your heart can get really weak as you get older and that will that will age you and and that will cause you to die prematurely but you need flexibility and so i just started doing yoga again and i was surprised at how much flexibility and mobility i lost during the pandemic just not doing a regular yoga practice but the other piece of the puzzle is really talking about stress and resilience like stress drains our batteries and and trauma particularly causes consistent battery drain because we're we're in this hypervigilant hyperreactive state that wastes a lot of energy so managing your trauma mastering your stress response really trying to become more psychologically resilient is really key for being a, a sort of modern warrior now the last piece of the puzzle which is something i did not realize until the last few years of teaching at stanford was the importance of connection for longevity so we need to, we we can't just have great amounts of energy in our body. We need to plug into a community. We need to feel connected to people. And healthy human connection is the greatest factor that we know in long-term health and happiness. Toxic relationships will age you faster than anything. I've literally spoken to multiple people who've had traumatizing work relationships, really challenging personal relationships and divorces, and they have had major health breakdowns. You cannot underestimate the power of relationships to improve your health or actually degrade your health. And so when I recognized that, I was like, oh my God, this is seriously important that we talk about. So I really talk, I talk about love a lot in the book, but um, for women, just to kind of just tie, t- tie it all together, there's a lot of things that you can do to biohack your way into better metabolism, better fitness, better stress, better sleep. But a lot of the things that women are doing that are biohacks are often taught by men. And so women have to be a little bit more careful with how we do ketosis, how we do fasting, how we do metabolic flexibility training, how we train our bodies, how we fuel our bodies before training, how we listen to our bodies throughout our cycles to really, really tune into what, what we need because our hormones are much more delicate than men's. And they're actually more responsive to the environment in order to actually protect humanity and keep the, the tribe alive. So women's hormones will shift more acutely in directions we don't necessarily like, but are that are that are actually adaptive to survival. And and that's important to understand because we can't stress, it's really important not to overstress the body as a woman. But, um, and so like really listening to your hormones. So then I talk a bit about sexuality because I think that it's something that's under um, discussed. And I think it's fundamental and important to existence. And I think it's really one of the driving creative forces of existence is our sexual spark. So I talk a bit about that at the end in the last chapter, last, last few chapters. It's a lot of takeaways. It's a pretty comprehensive book.
0: Yeah, that that sounds pretty thorough. Uh, I think I got the uh, Tony Robbins, Peter Diamandis, Healthspan. Was it called Healthspan? Um, oh yeah, well, uh, they've got just- a book
1: on um, on longevity, I believe, and Healthspan.
0: Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Anything of note on, on the sexuality chapters? It sounds like very juicy content. And I don't know if you're le- leaving that a little bit vague uh, because it's really good content.
1: Or I think my next book that I write will be largely based on um, sexuality, love, and attachment. Um, because I accidentally became an organismal biologist, which means I started really studying biology from this first principles um, perspective, which is that we are here to gather energy and resources so that we can stay alive. And that, and we are here to connect with others so that we can reproduce, whether we have kids or not, or make companies. So like we are here to create and we are here to connect. And this is our biological imperative. And this is the, one of the most fundamental truths of existence. And when you see the body through that lens, it changes the way you see the world. And I started my company, Adama Bioscience, because I really wanted to, I, I really wanted to explore the science of love to figure out how love can heal. And is there a science of measuring it? And how can, how can we amplify it? But under underneath all this research, I was like, "Oh my God, love is not always this beautiful thing. It's actually sometimes very toxic. In fact, there's there's unhealthy and healthy love. There are people who, like stalking, is an example of unhealthy love. Um, Domestic abuse can also be, uh, you know, you someone may say they love you, but they can they can abuse you. And so it's really interesting when you start looking at love with this deeper complexity. You realize that like when it's really healthy and nourishing." we can have these incredible, incredible experiences with others. And I personally believe that when you feel safe with someone, when you've, and there's this, you know, Aubrey Marcus's um, his wife, Ilana, recently released a single that's really about this topic, which is when you feel completely safe with a man, you are able to fully let go and fully experience your total bliss. But the biggest problem for women, I think, that inhibits their ability to feel their full range of, of sexual pleasure is they get it in their heads? There's quite a lot of women who have trauma. One in three women are sexually assaulted. One in four are abused as children, and one in three one in three are raped as adults um, or in their lifetime. So one in five, and so these numbers are pretty staggering, and. Any woman who has sexual um, trauma basically has a 60 to 80% chance of having sexual dysfunction. So there's quite a lot of women out there that are actually not having fully actualized sexual experiences because they have their bodies are in a state of hypervigilance and threat. I didn't go deep into this in the book, but I, I talk a lot about how People are not doing a good enough job talking about consent, talking about what they want, talking about being able to even talk about sex because of cultural influences, because of religiosity, because of the way that we were raised as women to be told that sex makes us dirty or like flawed in some way. There's a massive pleasure like discrepancy between men and women, specifically because women are told they're not supposed to have healthy sex lives, because if they do, then they are, you know, basically labeled, you know, in derogatory terms. Whereas a man is told that if he doesn't have a very healthy sex life, that he is somehow deficient. And so now we have this imbalance of men and women, men feeling like they're under sex, women feeling like they're not allowed to have sex. And I really think that we and I'm just going to state this publicly, like it is time for us to have a sexual revolution again because the psychedelic revolution happened in the 60s, so did the sexual re- revolution. The problem back then was that everything was pure chaos. We have an opportunity to bring structure into the psychedelic space, and we have ability to, we have an opportunity to bring safety, trust, and love into sexuality and giving people not just not crappy sex, which is what most sex, edu- most sex therapy today basically just takes you from, Having un, unsatisfactory, satisfactory sex to like generally having okay sex, but what I'm interested in doing is how do we get people to have like extra, like extraordinary sex? And I think psychedelics can be an incredible tool for helping people heal sexual trauma and heal like cultural traumas of and and, and the and, and heal the shame and the blame and the guilt that they have associated with sex. So I'm going to be running research studies demonstrating that. Psychedelics taken in a sex sexual context can transform sexual function. Kind of leading into the like, kind of leading into my company, but the se- the sex chapter of the book is really is really kind of like a a preview to that.
0: Very cool. Thank you for sharing. There's so much in there. I mean, so much of that, and and anybody who listens to the podcast will probably have heard me talk about the notion of chauvinism, not how we mostly traditionally define it, but as like the imbalance of the masculine and feminine chauvinism, turning men into performance objects and women into sex objects, and I think it's a super important conversation. I'm also a big believer of um, what you said, which is I I hate that this conversation about psychedelics is is rooted and based in mental health. It's it's so much more than that that I want it in many ways to leave the clinic, to leave the lab so we can have an age of Aquarius 2.0, so we can have the conversations about... The cultural and social changes that need to go along with it to really make a, a difference in this. So you, you hit on so many things that I'm very passionate about.
1: I mean, human, the one thing I think that we all need to recognize is that psychedelics have been used for human connection for a long time. And they've been used to help people come together through ritualistic context to connect. And I actually gave a talk at Delic on the history of psychedelic aphrodisiacs. Almost every psychedelic is an aphrodisiac if used in an aphrodisiacal context. So um, not everyone sees it that way because not everyone's connected to their sexual source energy. But I do think that they can be profound tools for helping resolve relationship conflicts, for helping enhance sexual function. But it's so fundamentally important that we bring science to this state, this, this space, because we need to understand that there's a du- they're a double-edged sword. There, the problem with the science of psychedelics in sexuality is that almost all of it relates to unsafe sexual contexts non-consensual sex people being you know there's there's actually papers written about how MDMA is it is it a, a date rape drug or not is it does it actually take away your ability to have consent there's so much discussion about underground psychedelic therapists sleeping with their, their clients there's already a problem in mental health practitioners where a I literally read a paper that said up to 10% of male mental health practitioners have relations with their clientele. If that is true, then we have a much bigger discussion to be had about society and the way that we even talk about sex, because, like, I think that there there is a there is problems with the way that psychedelics and drugs are u- are used within in a sexual context. There's also a problem that we don't have healthy examples of how to use them in a way that is safe, that is consensual, that is life affirming, that is life enhancing, that is you know you know potentially deeply healing, and um and I want to show that that's possible because there's a massive paucity of of literature, and I spoke to. These research, there's researchers at Imperial College yesterday, and they presented a poster at this conference basically showing that if you take psilocybin against SSRIs for for depression, they are quite good at managing depression, but they they actually they don't affect sexual function, they enhance it in healthy normals and in people who have depression. So my job is to figure out how do we turn this into something that is a, a protocol that can be taught, that can be instructed for couples to go through and potentially someday creating protocols for individuals to go through on their own, to connect with themselves, to help heal. And I think this is like, a this is basically the space I want to pioneer because it turns out sex therapy today, this is crazy. Almost all mainstream sex therapies that are like used by sex therapists are actually do not involve any sex at all. They actually are completely, like, psychological-based therapies. CBT, mindfulness-based therapy, sensate therapy. Sensate therapy does involve physical touch, but it doesn't involve sex. And, like, some of the more newer versions, they're, they're all about just, like, taking sex off the table, which I'm like, it's kind of like going to a trainer and being like, we're taking exercise off the table. <laughs> you know, like... I do think that if you're going to go through sex therapy, you, you should be having sex with your partner. And, um, it's, it's interesting that there, I do think that these are effective, fairly effective at actually resolving distress around sexual dysfunction. Because if you go through CBT and MBT, you are going to have less distress. If you go and if you go and have sex with your partner and you're and you're nervous because regularly having sex, you don't want it. Having sensei therapy is going to take off some of that distress, but it's not going to give you ecstatically great, blissful sex. It's going to give you average sex. So my theory is that we need to redo. We, we need to redesign the entire protocols. We actually need to be, we need to teach people how to, have, how to have great sex. And I don't personally subscribe to a lot of the tantric community belief systems. There's quite a lot of problems with a lot of these underground tantric mystery schools that people are engaging in. There's a lot of issues with consent. And I, th- I think we have a major opportunity to start a sexual revolution around psychedelics that actually brings more safety, more trust, more love, and, and gives people an ethical framework to think through. Because Right now, people are kind of flying blind, and it's not ending well.
0: That's really fucking cool. Uh, pun not intended, but actually, uh, I guess, an appropriate pun, no less. Uh, that's amazing. And and so is that the focus of the work you're doing at Adamo? Uh, Adamo? How do you pronounce it? Uh, Adamo. Uh, so
1: for Adamo um, Bioscience, I started as a drug company, and I okay. do have a, a love drug that's got a provisional but I got to the point where I was like, this the, the, the drug I'm working with is just, it's a little too complex for the American market. It might be commercializable in like Brazil, but combination drugs just aren't going to go through, like triple combination drugs just aren't going to go through the FDA here. So what I want to do is I want to basically do research on, on antactogen-based sex therapy. But I also am designing protocols that can be used with existing psychedelics that are available now, which is ketamines, which is something that I'd love to have a longer conversation with you offline. But I really think that our job, like the one thing I realized I was getting stuck with the psychedelic pharmaceutical path was like just the magnitude of how long it's going to take to get a drug approved. And I had a bit of an existential crisis in Antarctica because I was watching ice cap melt. And I was just like, oh, Jesus Christ, we're so fucked. <laughs> and I was like, I can't work on a project that's going to take 20 years. I got to do something that can help people now. So I realized I, if I develop the protocol, the protocol alone will be beneficial. But the protocol with the science of the psychedelic medicine will be transformative. And so that's what I'm really focusing on now is the protocol development and developing a drug agnostic path.
0: Have you read uh, "Recapture the Rapture" by Jamie Wheel?
1: Yeah, yeah. So someone told me literally yesterday to to look at his study he designed. So I'm friends with Jamie, and I'm, I'm going to be following up with him on this.
0: I mean, I, I've read most of the book. I haven't finished it yet, but I, I think it's pretty insightful. I think there's a, a lot of good thinking uh, that goes into in, into all of that. God, there's so much uh, so much here, but like that's such a good place to like end on a such a positive note that. Uh, know if i want to actually i'm going to go to this question um which is shifting gears a little bit i had a whole bunch of questions i'll just kind of frame them and and maybe you can touch on them but we don't don't necessarily have to go too deep which is i'm call it a, a biohacker enthusiast um in many ways i i I'm wearing an apple watch i had a whoop strap i have a lumen and i follow a lot of this stuff you know i followed like dave asprey for a while until i think he went off a, a little bit of the the deep end on, on certain things and one of the things i i find that like i kind of got stuck on is creating more anxiety than benefit being like oh can i do is this okay is this not okay like you talked about like you know industrial meats it's like well um carbs, industrial, like it becomes impossible. And it can also increase like the anxiety, especially as we move more to a a kind of digital conversation. So I'm pivoting it from there to something else, but it it kind of straddles, which is in your book, you talk about, and you use the line ancient genetics and modern bodies. And I found that line really interesting. Last week, we had an author, David Sachs, on the podcast talking about his new book, which is called The Future is Analog, which is an exhortation um, to question whether we want this actual digital utopian future that we seem on the inevitable crash course towards. And so the question I wrote here is, if you could wave your magic wand, what would you change in our societies? like The insights, the awareness, the tools, all that kind of stuff to make sure we're doing a, a better job of you know living with our ancient genetics and in our modern bodies and yeah. Would I change? Yeah. <laughs> and and it's, like, it's kind of like, it also goes back to the question of like, you talk about optimizing and in some ways it sounds great. On the other hand, it seems like a relentless pursuit of chasing something that is an indefinable goal. And, and it's one of the things I kind of struggle with. Well, you
1: need to have definable goals. You really need definable goals. And that is something that most people don't have. And so definable goals is key, but I don't, I mean, all of them, 80% of the of, of diseases that we see are preventable in America. And almost all of them are metabolic in nature. And they're very much tied to our lifestyles that are out of sync with our ancient genetics. So there's like two ways to deal with this right now. One way is like you could just move to a place in the world where it's easy to be healthy. And if you look at Singapore, if you look at Costa Rica, if you look at Europe, a lot of these countries have literally been, there's a lot of thoughtful people who've actually really thoughtfully designed, you know, urban planning to enable people to move and walk all day long. And everyone's like, oh my God, I went to Europe and I lost 10 pounds. Well, you also walk 10 miles a day, right? So we don't make it easy for people to move in America. And as a result, everyone's driving everywhere. So if there's one thing I would change is I would just change the way that we can create, we should be able to create passive opportunities for health. And we are living in a deeply toxic food environment. It's toxic because unlike in European countries where there's local economies of food production, we have a massive country wide eco- national economy of food production and as a result of this food system people are getting sicker and sicker and sicker because there, this food this food system is is actually poisonous so unfortunately like in order to be really well in America you actually have to be very different than the average person you really do you really cannot eat the food here it's not it's not nourishing. And as someone who also during the pandemic kind of got a little bit fatigued with health, health optimization. Cause like when you're in a total survival mode, you're like, yeah, I can't do everything that I'm trying to do. Now I did consistently exercise, but I definitely let my diet slip a bit because I was like living in the Midwest. There wasn't the same amount of food, like food that I would, I would like to eat. Like in California, California just has by far the best food environment. Spent some time in Florida. I would go to the farmer's markets all the farmer's markets in other cities just are very lackluster compared to what you see in California. So you're not really able to get the quality that you want, but you can get decent, you can get certain things that are quite good. And so I I experienced what it was like to just stop doing all the things that I do to optimize my health. And aside from like exercise and, and do my best to eat well in different environments. But I, I noticed my labs changed. I gained 10 pounds. I like I definitely didn't feel as good waking up. Like I, I just really noticed that my body wasn't at, in top form. And so having moved to Austin and gotten more settled, and I was a nomad for two and a half years, so I really wasn't able to maintain all the things that I was doing in my book. I was like, well, if I'm going to try to promote this book, I should really go back and do all the practices that I, I know are healthy, So I, I, so I started wearing my wearables. I started looking at my, my, my movement wasn't moving enough. I started looking at, I mean, I was definitely going to the gym, but I wasn't getting enough neat. I wasn't getting enough regular exercise.
0: Sorry. What's neat?
1: Non-exercise activity thermogenesis. It's all the, it's all the movement you get when you're not exercising. And, um, there was a particularly hot summer It was about hundred degrees a day every day. So there was, wasn't, it wasn't easy to move outside. And, um, I realized that like, by just getting back into all of these really fundamental health habits and using monitoring to get back on the saddle, I've, I was able to be like, you know what? I actually am eating too much sugar again. I mean, I'd really been off sugar for years, but I got back on it during the pandemic a little bit here and there, and it was showing up on my, on my blood sugar monitor. And I was like, you know what? Like, I don't actually need that in my diet. Like, what am I doing? Like, this is not in, a, in, in accordance to my highest standards, you know, my highest health standards. And so I don't look at these things as like, you don't have to do them all, all day, every day, all the time. But if you find yourself falling off your your health regimens and noticing your body change, noticing your weight, gaining weight, noticing your labs are getting different. Like some of my labs had shifted. I was like, wow, like I'm seeing things altered. My, I'm not in the same physical shape I was in. And so I just started doing all the things that I recommended in my book and I lost weight. I got in better shape. I started, my, my labs literally have never looked better. And it was one of those things where I know that I don't want to get chronic disease when I'm older. I know that my parents both have high blood pressure and high cholesterol. My grandfather had Alzheimer's. My grandmother had congestive heart failure. She was literally sedentary for like many years because of rheumatoid arthritis and her doctors told her not to move her body. Another one of my grandmothers became frail after an accident. Now she's in a nursing home. I don't want that to be me. And as much as it's a pain in the ass to have to wear these wearables and monitor how much I move and make sure that I'm I'm doing all these things, I'd rather do the hard work now than wake up in my 60s and like 70s, 80s, and actually have less life to be lived. Because I don't think we have to, like, we don't have to age the way our parents have aged. We don't actually have to age the way our grandparents have aged. Like, this doesn't have to be our destiny. But we are the first generation who's had the opportunity to actually have data to drive better decisions. So a lot of what this book is about is like, use data to change your health, but don't be so married to your data that that you become orthorexic. And you don't want to develop like, you know, orthorexia is like when people will binge and then they'll go fast, right? And like, that's not healthy. Like you don't want to, you want to develop a strong relationship to food, but you also need to recognize that like, if there's one thing that you want to biohack, it's your relationship quality. It's like work on your relationships. Like your stress levels will go down. Your blood sugar will be more stable. Like use your friendships to engage in healthy eating activities. Throw potlucks where everyone brings a healthy dish. Go and do group sports activities. Like use your socialization to drive a lot of your health practices. And that will actually lead to better outcomes than just focusing on being perfect on your wearables. Like they're useful. But also don't forget about the things that are obviously like tied to better health, which is if you look at these blue zones. People are spending time with their friends. They're they're walking around all day long. They're eating, but they're walking after meals. They're doing the simple things at work, and don't forget about those simple things.
0: On that note, I'm going to go walk my dog. Great, uh, thank you, Molly. <laughs> it's been really great. I'm glad we finally made this happen. Super insightful, super engaging conversation. So, I strongly implore you to go back to appreciating the uh, amazing environment sitting right over your shoulders, um, and. Look forward. I'll send you a note. I have a pretty packed schedule next week when I'm in Austin, but hopefully we can find some time to connect.
1: Cool. Well, if you have any meetings that need need an extra person, let me know.
0: (laughs) I will for sure. Awesome.
1: All right, cool.